Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com. You'll be hearing more about them later on in today's interview, which begins right now. I think that's my message about the markets. There will be money to be made on the upside and on the downside. But BBC, be bloody careful. This is not the world of the last 20 years. It's the world of your your, your, your granddad. And uh, you know he'll tell you it wasn't necessarily plain sailing. Very excited to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Paul Hodges, chairman of New Normal Consulting, author of the PH Report. Paul, great to have you back. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's it's my pleasure, Paul. The last time we spoke, it was roughly a month ago. Uh, you were very worried about what was going on in Europe, that the commodity price shocks would cause a recession. You were noting that the you know, renewed hawkishness from central banks globally were causing an, an asset uh, a price collapse. I think it's fair to say, Paul, that both of those fronts have gotten far, far worse in a very short amount of time. Uh, just give us a sense. What have you been seeing in the in the markets? Uh, yeah, to tell, tell us where you're at. Well, I think we're seeing two things, really. Um, if we look at the central banks, uh, the central bank spent 20 years uh, believing that uh, Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke were these wonderful super super bankers who could mean that you never, ever had a downturn. Or if you had a downturn, it was only five minutes and you passed on and nobody should, nothing to see here. Move along, please. Um, and so uh, that was 20 years. And what's interesting is that in the last few weeks now, you don't hear any central banker talking about Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke. There's only one central banker they talk about now, which is Paul Volcker. What did Paul Volcker do? Paul Volcker you know, helped to bring inflation down from 15 20%, depending on where you were, to where we got to. And how did he do that? Well, he didn't do that by supporting the stock markets. In fact, you know, if you go back to 1980, 1982, uh, you know, he said, you've got to get inflation down. We shouldn't have let it get to this point. So it's going to be fairly brutal. And you know, that's, that's what he did. Uh, so you know, th- this idea that the central bank is there to look after financial markets and you know, to paraphrase that great phrase about General Motors, you know, what's good for financial markets is good for the economy. Well, that has been revealed to be pretty much nonsense, as some of us thought all the time. But it's more important that it's now revealed as that. So we're now into this downturn. And and the problem is, and you can't blame the central banks for all of this, but you can certainly blame them for a lot of it, um, is you've now got um, an awful lot of debt. And the one thing that Volcker didn't have to deal with in 1980 was debt. there There were lots of things that were wrong with the economy, what could go into that, if you like. But we didn't have governments in vast debt. We didn't have central banks with asset overloaded asset um, balance sheets, and nor did we have personal income uh, really overcome by by debt. So we've got a major, major problem there. What, what we've also got is what I would call the three horsemen of the apocalypse. And again, you can't you, you can't blame central bankers. For this, uh, but we have we had the pandemic, uh, which is obviously a plague. Uh, we then we're now in and that's still going on. I mean, look what's happening in China. So you know we can't say that's finished uh, by any means. Uh, we've got war, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, and I'm afraid it's more or less certain we're about to get to famine, because the Russian invasion has pushed up 
energy prices, particularly gas prices. Gas prices go into fertilizer. About half of the world population, according to our world in data, are actually kept alive because of nitrogen fertilizers. They say without nitrogen fertilizers, you could only support about 4 billion people in the world instead of today's 7.9 billion. And you know, fertilizer prices have rocketed from 200 to $1,600 a tonne, and farmers can't afford it. And of course, that's going to push prices up for food and so on. We're already starting to see that uh, in the supermarkets and so on. So uh, you, can't, you can't blame them for that. But what you can do is say, well, you could have had the economy in a better state before this happened. But you're in a world now which is very much like the 70s. So uh, you've got high energy prices, you've got high interest rates, you've uh, going higher, no, no, you've got high inflation, you've got geopolitical tensions, you've got nuclear risks, you know, a whole series of things that you had in the 70s. And the, the point, I suppose, is that public opinion doesn't expect you to do nothing. You know, are you going to sit here and keep interest rates at two or three percent? And actually, if we turn it around the other way, what would happen if central banks did that? Well, anybody with any money would say, yeah, this isn't this isn't much fun of a game of soldiers. I'm not going to lend my money. And so the money markets would start, you know, start to take a life of their own, which is indeed what happened before before Volcker came along. We had something called phenomenon called the bond market for vigilantes. And, and the vigilantes basically started to push bond prices down and interest rates up because people, you know, like ourselves, if we had any money, which isn't, of course, like ourselves, but if we were, let's think of those glorious days, um, that you know, if we had, we would say, well, why would we lend at two or three percent when inflation is 8.3%. You know, there are lots of ways of losing money, but that is a pretty guaranteed way of doing it. So um, so whichever way you look at it, interest rates are going up, and they're probably going up a lot more than people expect. I mean, we would expect them to go, not overnight, uh, once they get through about three and a quarter percent, then we know we're, we're back in the world of you know, real interest rates, if you like. And probably if they do go over three and a quarter percent, they'll go very quickly to five percent. And I wouldn't rule them out going to 10 percent. Uh, and in the middle of that, of course, you'll have a housing crash. Uh, but, you know, we've been here before. We know how it works. Um, all, all one can do uh, is explain to people this. This is how it works. And if they see a flaw in the argument, then I'm delighted to hear of it. Uh, but, you know, that's normally how it all happens. But Paul, well, uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is to what degree, if the uh, inflationary shocks are on the supply side, do, do interest rate hikes, does quantitative tightening have any real supply on that? Like just to, just to put a point on it, you know, would, would uh, hiking interest rates from uh, uh, 1% to 6% overnight what would would that cause the price of ammonia to go back to, from sixteen hundred to two hundred dollars, or is it sort of outside of the the realm of the the Federal Reserve control? Well, I, I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago in Germany with uh, Joachim Nagel, the new president of the Bundesbank, and you know, what 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 he was saying, and John, John Williams of the New York Fed was there as well, um, is that you've got to tackle supply and demand because you've got you've got both things going 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 on at once. So you can, you can argue 
and to a certain extent it's true that supply shortages are you know unconnected with interest rates but not really because supply is being driven by supposed demand so if demand drops then supply will will start to rebalance you know, so what what you've really got to do all the time with interest rates is they really hit demand they don't hit much on demand on supply immediately but they have an indirect effect so if you reduce demand then you will see that supply starts to rebalance just by logic right and you know paul you are a, have been a student of supply chains for a long time why are supply chains still messed up do you see any hope going forward that supply chains will resolve will return to a, a sort of a normal globalized uh, efficient uh, market where you know where where we won't have all of this volatility in the prices of goods. Uh, I I I turn your question round a bit, Jack. Uh, I think we're going back to a world where we don't have supply chains anymore. We have what's called distribution, and you know what, that, what I mean by that is you had the baby boomers, the boomers in the seventies and eighties created fantastic demand as we've discussed in the past. You know, you had a 52% increase in the number of babies born in the States between 1946 and 64 compared to the previous 18 years. Well, if you have a 52% increase in the number of babies born you know, in a certain amount of time, not the day one, not day two, but certainly 10 and 20 years, you start to get a fantastic increase in demand. So that's what you did. The only way you can ration demand if you, if, you, if you can't build supply fast enough to supply it, you have to ration demand by higher prices and higher interest rates. But then what happened, and I was part of this in the late 80s and the 90s, was you said we need more supply. And it, you know, it was quite clear that demand was growing every year because all these babies were coming into that 25 to 54 wealth creator period and they were having their own babies and they were buying houses and they were buying cars and so on. So you needed more stuff and more stuff. So you had to globalize. And so that's when we went from distribution, making it in, in Chicago and selling it in Chicago, or if you like in Illinois, if you want to go excited, and you said, no, we've actually got to do global supply chains. So I, I, you know, I had 12 in my business uh, in ICI, I had 12 business development people around Asia, Asia Pacific, and we were building plants as fast as we could in order to supply back. But we haven't got a young population anymore. We've got an aging population. So we don't need global globalization anymore. We don't need all this stuff. We've got a hiccup at the moment because we, we, we were set up for this and then COVID came along completely changed demand patterns and meant that with, with, the, with the lockdowns that you also all, all the long distance supply got messed up. And then, of course, you've got you've got a third element. You know, I always regard these things as, as a bit like you throw a stone in the pond and the first pond, first stone you throw is COVID and you, you lock people down and so on. And then you throw another stone in the pond and because you've locked people people down you now aren't getting too much supply coming out because factories are shut and ships are quarantined and all of that sort of stuff that we know about and then you throw a third stone in and it start its ripples start to hit the ripples of the other two and now you've got customers you know for, for example target 
and uh, Walmart saying, well, we better move from just-in-time supply chain to just-in-case. You can't rely on everything arriving. You know, we ordered it from Shanghai. It should have been here last week, but it hasn't come. In fact, it hasn't come on schedule now for over a year. So we better order more. And so at first you see a lot of apparent demand because people are ordering more and more. And so prices go up because people say, well, this is fantastic demand. But it wasn't really actual demand. It was people buying just in case. And last week we saw the denouement of that with both Target and Walmart. And, you you know, you can't get better retailers than them. You know, it's not like saying this is Farley and Hodges who just don't know what they're doing. In this case, you know. Harlan Hodges, we've got to go on bridges, Paul. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, but to be frank, you know, uh, we we could have done better <laughs> this time round because they made such a mess of it. You know, it's unlikely. Well, with, I couldn't have, but with you on board, we definitely could have. So, yeah, so Paul, oh, I, I was know. at a uh, my company's Blockworks crypto conference last week, permissionless. Mm-hmm. So it took. It must have taken a pretty intense. Uh, sell-off in traditional finance markets for me to pay attention. But I'll say, right in the middle of crypto uh, conference, I did notice that t- uh, Target fell 30% in one day. Even I noticed. <laughs> so just, yeah, just tell us why, why, is it, why, why is it that Target is down 30% and the business is, is really suffering? You have a, a blog post out called um, U.S. Stocks Set for Long-Term Decline as Fed Pivots to Focus on, quote, Put inflation, Put inflation. Why are why is inflation bad for stocks? You know, I can make the counter argument and say, Paul, if inf- the prices of things are going up, who sells things? Companies, they're going to make more money. Uh, why isn't why is inflation so so necessarily bad for stocks in U.S. stocks in particular? It, I mean, the, the, there are occasions when it can be it can be good news. Usually at the start of a, uh, of, a, of, a of a sort of inflationary cycle, because at the start of an inflationary cycle, what you see is people ordering more because they know prices will be higher tomorrow. You know, we see this in the oil market all the time. You know, every time the oil price doubles, which seems to be most weeks these days, uh, people rush to buy a bit and then they discover, oh, no, we're not actually, you know, they've got a call from the salespeople saying, well, we haven't sold anything, Gov. You know, so there's no point in buying any more. And so they destock, you know, and so you you have a sort of boom bust mentality. And uh, and that's going to continue. We're, we're in a boom bust mentality but what, what 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 the underlying picture here is you've got this thing uh, which i think was the president of lithuania uh came up with 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 the term of put inflation you know play on putin and inflation because what the war has done is it's pushed up all energy prices it's pushed up fertilizer costs and therefore food prices and, and this is because you know, energy costs go into everything don't only heat your home and transport and everything else, but all the things that you have around you, including chemicals, uh, obviously, and plastics and so on, they've all got uh, an energy component. And so if you're if you're in uh, that kind of world, what you're now seeing, to go back to my analogy of, uh, of stones in the pond, is you've got lots and lots of ripples happening out there, and they're jumping into each other as it were, and causing more ripples to form. And nobody can quite work out how this goes. But the end result, the key answer to your question is everything becomes less affordable. So what you're seeing now is you're seeing um, in you know, in markets, for example, you're seeing fuel versus food. You know, should we be having bioethanol uh, going and biodiesel 
for, for, our, for our cars or should we be using that land to grow eth uh, ethanol for food? Similarly, people going to the shops, there's an awful lot of anecdotal evidence about this from the, the big retailers around the world. Shoppers going in and they've got, they've got to choose between heating their home or eating. And, that, and that's, that's what does for equities. I mean, I'd say you know, that there will inevitably be some sectors of the market that, that, that you know, buck that trend. I mean, defence is an obvious one that you know, could, could do well for the moment, certainly. If, if we go back to our rotation theme, what you saw was that all these very naive investors in 2020 spent their furlough money on options with our friend Barstool, putting them into complete rubbish stocks. And, you know, and those rubbish stocks all fell apart in the end, as rubbish stocks do. People didn't say, oh, wait a minute, this isn't a good idea. We better think about this a bit. They said, ah, oh, now I just got into the wrong stocks. I need to get into the fangs. And so you get a final hurrah. This is Bob Farrell's rule, I think, number four, of the public buys the most at the top and least at the bottom, which, of course, is how you can tell it's a top. And so they all rushed in and they all bought Apple and they all bought Facebook and they all bought and so on. And then, and I mean, knock me over with a feather, but who would believe that if you weren't locked down anymore and if you weren't therefore having to watch more and more television and trying to keep the kids amused and so on, and your, your cash was getting a bit tight now because you'd lost your furlough money, who would believe that you might cancel the Netflix subscription? Oh, Nobody would have thought that happened. Dear, oh dear. Well, then it did. And then people said, my goodness, this is extraordinary. And obviously, I mean, look, nobody could have thought of this either. If you're not worth, you know, having to be at home and you're actually able to go out to the shops, you, who would have thought you'd buy less from Amazon? I mean, obviously, that's quite good. And, and equally, uh, with, that, with, that, with Apple, you know, I mean, obviously, everybody's always going to buy Apple foods, but supposing you can't get Apple phones anymore because of Chinese lockdowns. So in other words, what we're seeing is reality starting to come back at a very, very slow pace. And of course, yeah, the market is already down 20%, near enough, bouncing today because lots of people say, well, it's down 20%. Obviously, that's the bottom. Well, <laughs> you know, I've been, been, been here before and I can tell you that, you know, this is the second most valued, highly valued market in history, according to Robert Schiller's CAPE index, which is a cyclically adjusted price earnings. So it goes back to 1881. It's on the blog today, and the blog is free, so you know, anybody can go and go We'll put a link, it. yep. Yeah. Um, so just go to new-normal.com, go to blog, and, and have a look. So there is the chart from... Professor Robert Schiller of, of Yale got a Nobel Prize for this work, so you know, he's pretty good. And it showed the highest valuation was 2000, after which NASDAQ came down 80%, as we know. The second highest valuation was last year. It was higher than in 2008, and you know, certainly higher than, than you know, anything else. So we, we are kind of going to come down. The, the normal valuation, we were at 38 uh, last year, the normal valuation is about 15. So we are, you know, if you came down by 50%, you would only be coming down to a an average valuation. But of course, you never 
you know, markets don't just go to a, a nice rational thing. They always overreact. If they've gone too far up, they come too far down. So there will be a buying moment, but it will probably be about 2024, 2025, with one proviso that this rotation theory, which we've seen many times, so it, you know, it's 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 not something that, that we need to sort of say, oh well, I'm not sure that will happen. We people get to a certain down point and they say, ah, oh, no, no, that must be the end now. And anyway, this is great new opportunity. And that's why you get some of the strongest rallies in bear markets. You can see markets going up 50% sometimes, sometimes only 10%. And I suspect that this time round, some of the rallies will be very sharp indeed, because after all, you haven't got many individual investors anymore. You haven't got many you know, who are buying their own stocks. What you're doing is you've got people buying exchange traded funds and of course you've got 60 to 70 percent of the market run by algorithms so if there's a headline there the new york times or the wall street journal or usa today or something boom in they go up it up it goes and, and so you know you'll get these very sharp moves and of course people will then follow uh, with that and then it will collapse again uh, so it's going to be you know there is money to be made in these markets as there's money to be made in any market but it's a market where you've got to be very cautious because what you see is not reality. Paul, first, I, I want to divide the market into a few subsectors. First, I want to address, ask you about probably the most beleaguered sector in the market, which would be the hyper growth, unprofitable technology stocks. So sort of the poster child for this would be ARKK, that, that ARK Invest ETF. Um, a company like Tesla, though Tesla is actually profitable, but you know maybe companies that are pre-revenue in some cases, like uh, Virgin Galactic or, or, or uh, QuantumScape, uh, QS, companies where they've told you that they're not going to make any money until 2025. And I'm talking about revenue in the case of, of, of QuantumScape. Uh, do you think it's game over for those type of companies? Well, the the, the question, what, why why is Amazon still with us today? Um, because in 2001, I think it was, uh, they had a very good uh, CFO who realized that they were about to go bankrupt and before they did, raised a bucket of money and kept them alive. So, um, you know, so, so it, it's foolish to say that you know, all of these companies will go bust, but the one characteristic that you can tell when a company will go bust is when they fail to recognize that the zeitgeist of the world has changed. So what was incredible to me last week, but actually a very good signal, was that I think, you know, 26 billion or something went into ARC. Now, you know, that's plainly stupid, right? But it shows you there are still lots of people out there who want to double down. And they say, well, I didn't see it coming that this was going to fall, but obviously it's a mistake. So ARC is going to go back up again. And so this is a very good signal that we're, you know, people are saying, oh, 20% down, we must be capitulating. Guys, you know, I, I mean, I, I cannot see any reason in the world for investing in ARC unless you happen to be a momentum player. You know, it's just business model and everything else just makes no sense to me whatsoever. If you look at Tesla, I can see some reason to invest in Tesla. Uh, you know, he's he's making some uh, some cars. Uh, he's got, for the moment, uh, a bit of a cash cushion because he can sell uh, emission rights to other uh, to other companies. And I believe in electric vehicles. And as far as I know, 
you know, the people I've talked to, they all like driving uh, Tesla cars. So he's got some pluses there. What we don't really know is what's his break even for all, all this. How, how will this go? Is he really able to manage it? But what we do know is that he is not going to dominate the EV market because GM and VW and Ford and all the others are very good at this game. And, you know, you're, you're playing against people who've done this for 100 years. So it's very unlikely they're just going to give up because they've noticed what's happening and they've been at it now for five years themselves. You know, they're catching up quite fast and they've got a lot of resources, most definitely resources. They've got the income from gasoline and diesel sales, which is very high. So they can afford to do this. They don't have to go to the market to, uh, to borrow more money, which is what Tesla has done. But the other problem with Tesla is people say, well, not only is he going to dominate and control the entire electric vehicle market, he's going to dominate and control the entire autonomous vehicle market. Far, far more difficult than that. Oh, and is going to control all the world taxi market. Now, at that point, you know, you've, you've got people taking leave of their senses. You know, if, you, if you sat down with a pencil and a piece of paper, you'd say, well, how, you know, what kind of market share do we think that Tesla could get over the next five to 10 years as competition develops? Could it get 5% of the market? Probably could. Um, it does, does a reasonable job. Could it get 10% stretching it? Because you've got an awful lot of competition coming at you, particularly from China. Um, so, uh, you know, but maybe it's in the 5 to 10%. Then you've got to say, well, how many cars and so on. You've got to do some basic analysis of how many cars can he sell? What's his cost base going to be? Pretty difficult to work that out today because costs are going up all the time. What's the impact of autonomous vehicles? Yeah, all I'm saying is, if you want to get a valuation for Tesla in today's market, you've now got to go back to what a chap called Ben Graham would be talking about. Ben Who, Graham. Who's that? Who's that? Ben, ben, <laughs> ben, <laughs> ben, okay. ben yeah. Remember Ben Graham? Ben. <laughs> you know that? You know, we know Barstool Harry said, oh, you know, roll over uh, Warren Buffett. I'm the new Buffett. Well, yeah, well, what's, he, he, he was for about a week, but he isn't anymore. Um, nope. And, you know, Warren... What Warren's claim to fame is that he studied under Ben Graham at New York University. Ben Graham was the guy who invented securities analysis. And his his view is that the, the price of a share depends on the earnings over the next 10 years. That's the timescale on which you buy a share. It's not, the, not what the market, you know, are, are you a bigger fool than me? Can I sell it to you for, for 50% more than I bought? Yeah, no, uh, those markets happen. We've seen those markets, but that's not how they're going to work now. So somewhere in there, you can do an analysis of, uh, of Tesla and you'll probably come out with a valuation. I think we did it the other day of around, around 70 or something. Um, yeah, it's not that high, uh, but there is, you know, there is $70 per share. Yeah. That would be that would be what I don't know what the price to earnings ratio is now, something close to 100. So that would be closer to a price to earnings ratio of something like 15, right? Something around there, right? Yeah. So it's a blog, blog post from the 6th of February. Um, so if you, if you look at Tesla uh, at that time, 6th of February, it was priced at uh, 923. I was slightly out on its on its Graham price because uh, the Graham price would be 50, 53. So uh, it was 1,797% overvalued. Amazon 
uh, was uh, 573% overvalued. Uh, Netflix was 452% overvalued. Not quite so overvalued now. Uh, Microsoft was 303% overvalued. Apple was 337%. I mean, you're kind of getting the picture here, aren't you? Uh, Google was 300%. Right. Facebook was was a mere 202% overvalued. And Ben Graham, as I say, was the uh, was the mentor of, and uh, and tutor of Warren Buffett. So uh, there's there's something quite important about that. And it's, you know, like all great things, the helpful things, it's actually relatively simple. You know, you think of 8.5 uh, as your as your base case. And if you're really sure that it's going to grow at 1% for the next 10, 10 years, you give it a 10.5. And as interest rates go up, you'll change that around. But it kind of gets you in the ballpark. You know, should you be paying, you know, 500 for this? Well, you know, probably not. I've got a problem. I've got a serious problem to propose to you, Paul, which is that the value stocks of today, copper miners, oil drillers, energy service companies, uh, uh you know, low quality earning retail companies, shipping stocks, they're all overvalued mm. based on Ben Graham's thing. There's nothing, it's not, oh, Apple and Tesla are overvalued. And then there's this pristine world of uh, appropriately equ uh, uh, valued equities. Nothing's in the ballpark, Paul. Well, but what else could it be, Jack, given that this is the second most overvalued market in history? You know, you, yes. you, start in, you start in 1881 and you get to 2022 and the only market that has ever been more val highly valued was in 2000. And we know what happened in 2000. So, yes. you know, we, we therefore have to assume it's going to be a long and painful route down, but we're going to get people like yourself coming in and saying, oh, look, we're down 50%. It's yeah, well, that's more than enough. Look, these stocks have got great opportunities now. And you'll get rallies. You'll get relief rallies. And, you know, I, I wouldn't discourage people from playing those rallies. I'd just say, be very careful. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com, a leading cryptocurrency trading platform. From spot to futures to options trading and more, Bit.com has it all. So whether you're a seasoned investor or you're new to the game, you need to be on Bit.com. Bit.com has launched a zero-taker fee option campaign until May 10th. To enroll, email VIP at Bit.com. That's Bit spelled B-I-T. So email VIP at Bit.com and tell them I sent you. And what? Um, how are you handicapping, Paul, the odds of a recession in Europe? The last time you... you we spoke, you said that the huge surge in commodity prices, particularly natural gas, would ha cause severe demand destruction in Europe, particularly in countries like Germany that are heavily dependent on Russian natural gas. How has that played out over the past month? What are you seeing? Well, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that Europe is in recession. Right now. Yeah. And, and I would say that uh, China is probably also in recession as well because of the lockdowns. So two of the three major economies in the world are in recession. Uh, the US was in, you know, was negative growth in quarter one. Whether it scrapes through in quarter two or not, I don't know. But yeah, the US is not going to be on its own here. Somehow head above water when the rest of us are, are drowning. So you, you you've already got a, a fairly weak economy. You know, the the, the sign of the economy uh, is around asset prices and asset price inflation. 
So you've had 20 years of the European Central Bank, just like the Fed and just like China and so on, perhaps a bit less with China, um, you know, saying, you know, what's good for asset prices is good for the economy, which, of course, is complete nonsense. There's no connection between the two. Um, what, and, and what you've got, therefore, is a complete disconnect between the financial world and the real world of the economy. And what you found is that, you know, if you own a house, you're very, very wealthy. If you've owned some stocks, you're very wealthy. But you, you are, you, you are asset rich, rich, but cash poor. And and this is an important concept that you can talk to people who live in, you know, what are valued as quite expensive houses, but they haven't got very much cash to spend. Particularly, they're older and they're living on a pension now. Uh, you know, that's that. So you've got you've got to distinguish between the two. And if you look now at Europe. What we're seeing is that you know, exactly those two things happening, but people are having to choose between heating their home and feeding themselves. Now, some governments have done been more sensible than others. Uh, France, I think, limited energy price increases to four percent. Uh, the UK uh, pushed them up by uh, by by a hundred percent. Well, clearly, the UK goes straight into recession on that, particularly because they're talking about putting another. Uh, 100% rising in October. Uh, so, um, you know, this is, you know, th th this is just stupidity. But what would you expect from, from the government you've got in the UK? Um, you know, you've got, you've got some, you, you've got some more sensible policies being in France and Germany and elsewhere. But you've got this overwhelming problem that you've got, you know, the three horsemen, you, you're still really not recovered from the pandemic. Uh, nothing is, is as, it, as it was in 2019. You've got the war, which is pushing up prices everywhere, and you're going to have famine. So, you know, and this is you know, the, 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 thing, the thing about uh, the, the higher energy prices is that, that this doesn't happen, you know, in, in the click of a mouse. We're eating the food today that was grown with fertilizer and, crop, and crops planted six months or so ago. Now we're in a situation of, well, can the farmer afford to buy the fertilizer you know, and, the, and the seeds and so on in order to plant the next crop? Can the, the farmer afford, afford to feed his animals? The IMF has talked about this now. The World Bank has talked about it. The World Trade Organization. I mean, the, the, you know, there were some discussions today which people will probably probably see are some really apocalyptic warnings about famine because you if you if you look at ukraine and russia just on the simple case of wheat exports they're 29 percent of the world wheat market and the black sea is uh, is blockaded so none of it is getting out even if they even if there were people farming and even if they were able to afford the fertilizer so somewhere like egypt which imports i think 80 percent of its wheat doesn't get isn't getting wheat so the bread prices are going up and so on. And, and this whole area is knock-on effects like this. So um, no, it's very definitely Europe is in, is in recession. And, and it's very difficult to get out of this. Is there any hope uh, of agricultural products that can come onto the market? I know you're somewhat optimistic, or you were a month ago, about natural gas that could come from the United States. It could be... Uh, turned into liquefied natural gas, put on tankers to Europe, then regasified there. How is that looking? I know you said that you you wanted 
Olaf Scholz to uh, to the government German government to do it by November of this year, but that it would require a Herculean effort, somewhat similar to what was required during World War II. How, have what you've seen on the ground since then has that given you hope, or are you less hopeful? Well, I I, I it was interesting. I was I was I was in Germany uh, with a lot of financial people and and, and others, and the, uh, the the economics minister uh, Robert Halbeck was getting very, very high ratings from everyone, although he's a Green. So I think this is quite interesting that, um, you know, this is a guy who came in saying we must get rid of fossil fuels, we must get rid of, uh, and so on. But he's actually, you know, almost the first thing the poor chap had to do was to go out to the UAE and say, excuse me, sir, could I have some natural LNG? Um, you know, so he's being very, very pragmatic. And they have, they've signed contracts now for, uh, to buy the LNG carriers that I talked about, which you can degasify, so you 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 can't literally by November, uh, you know, build degasification. So even if you wade through all the environmental approvals and everything else, you just physically can't do it. Uh, but you could more uh, LNG carriers there and do it that way, and they are you know they're moving as fast as they can. They've signed contracts for those and so on. So it's just a question of can you physically get it all done. Uh, in the time, so that the, there's a, there's a lot of things, but you know, re- remember that that is not a return to where we were. That is simply trying to ensure that things aren't as bad as as, as they might be, and there is a knock-on effect, of course, which is one of the things that's happened. And you know, people in Europe are very grateful to the states uh, because the states has made available all this LNG, which has pushed up natural gas prices in the states. So. You know, Europe, Europe is down. Europe is filling its gas storage like mad at the moment. You know, so it will it, it will it will be you know at sensible levels uh, and se- and secure for a normal winter by September October without any doubt at this current. But at the same time, what that means is that the states is suffering from higher gas prices, and Asia is because normally what you get is a modest flow of LNG from the states to. Uh, uh, to, to Asia. Now that's obviously had to be cut off. And again, you know, Europe is very grateful to Japan, who have said, no, that's fine. You need it more than we do. You know, go ahead. You know, the the uh, the, the Western democratic world uh, is really working together here. And we are sharing the pain, which is fantastic. You know, really, really one, one needs to acknowledge that. Um, but, but it isn't painless. So you, just to be clear, you said that Europe is filling its gas storage tankers like mad and that does that mean that it will europe will have enough natural gas for the winter basically what you have to do is you have to build storage during the summer months when demand for natural gas is low because demand in the winter gets very high so um the other problem you've got of course is that you've got uh oil embargoes coming along and you know it's it's very clear already that the russian russian oil is not only being embargoed by some countries but is also uh, being embargoed by insurers because they're not sure you know if something goes wrong and there's a claim what is it was this legal shipment and so on by insurers um, for for ships you you can't insure a russian ship because what's going to happen yeah that makes sense that, that's right and so on so so what 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 you've got is you've you've got You've got a reasonable chance of having sufficient gas storage in Europe for a normal winter. Now, we were jolly lucky last winter that we had a warm winter, but very few, uh, very, very cold days, you know, 
the Great Sod's Law suggests that you know you may well end up with a colder winter, therefore this time round, which would require higher. But the main the main issue you've now got is you normally are able to balance oil and gas supply and coal. Now again, Robert Halbeck has gone up and he's bought coal. He bought coal from anywhere, right? So you know everybody's everybody's doing the sensible, pragmatic things. Sorry about CO two emissions. Sorry about all of that. Yeah. But you know if people if, if people freeze to death or starve to death, that doesn't. Well, it does help global warming, but it doesn't really. If you like, so yeah, you know, we've got, yeah. I mean, we've he bought a ton, of course, something like two two billion cubic feet a day equivalent uh, mm. of coal. I mean, and this yeah. is someone who you know this is the, the German party had been banning nuclear power and now they're embracing coal i mean this just goes to show how quickly the situation has changed yeah so so what 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 i'm cautioning against is that you know we my my guess is that there will be uh, an embargo and sanctions on russian oil and gas at some point and that if there isn't putin at some point in september october will stop supplies as he's already seems to have done with Finland at the weekend. You know, Putin knows when he's got a card in his hand and he will he will play it. So we can't assume that Russian oil and gas will be available in the winter when we need it. So uh, how do all the balances work out? Well, we don't know yet. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And maybe, maybe you will overstock in some areas. Well, who cares, really? <laughs> I mean, this is this is not just national security. This is life and death. And so, and what what is causing the European recession? Just to be clear, is it the the high natural gas prices? And how is that manifesting? Is it you know demand destruction? What's going on? Well, we've we've already had high oil prices for a, you know for eighteen months now, and we know that high oil prices once once oil prices get above around 3% of global GDP, you almost inevitably get into global recession. Because what you're seeing there is that people have a certain amount of discretionary cash to spend. And if oil prices are low and they don't have to spend very much on driving to work or acting as a taxi service for the kids or heating the home or keeping that home cool, then they've got more money to spend on things that drive the economy. But if the oil price is high, you know, this is this is the 1980s and the 1970s uh, teaching us, and we've seen it all the way through uh, since then. If oil prices are high, that money goes to governments who don't necessarily spend it. And in the meantime, the people who would be spending it, they haven't got any spare discretionary cash, so they have to cut back. What do you think are the odds of a recession in the US? Oh, 85, 90%. And when do you think it will come? Oh, I, I mean, I, A, you're, you're at the point of over 3% uh, of uh, global GDP being spent on oil. And, of course, you know, we, we don't normally look at gas prices because that's not so important. But today it is because gas prices are very much higher. I mean, natural gas, uh, not, not gasoline. Uh, so you've got very high oil prices and you've got uh, high natural gas prices. So that's that's one thing. Secondly, you've got you know, a, a recession in, 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 in Europe, you've got a recession in China, and you've got an enormous amount of debt, and interest rates are going up. So how do people pay those debts? De debt 
is essentially you you bought today something you didn't need till tomorrow. It brings forward demand. Now, you can argue with a, with a house, that's sensible. You know, I know I'm going to need a home for the next 20 years, so it makes sensible to buy it forward and, and take out a mortgage and so on at a sensible rate. Uh, may do that with, with a car at a sensible rate. But credit card debt? The credit card debt's a bit different. You're paying a very, very high interest rate for what? For something you consume and finish with. That's, you know, that, you know, so so you, you, you've, you've got a problem with, with spending habits here that people have been used to being able to roll over and you, you know, there's always another credit card offer and I can swap it over and so on and so forth. I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm not being pejorative. This is something I've done myself. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I'm holier than thou. Uh, you know, I know the syndrome, but I also know uh, it doesn't work out well. At some point, it all goes wrong. And, and that's, that's the point we're at today. Right. Paul, I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to disagree with you, but I want to ask you about your time horizon. And is it possible that a U.S. recession is something that's more in the 12 to 24 month range? Because when I look at, let's say, credit card spending, up until very recently, the U.S. consumer was at a point where banks had a problem. People weren't borrowing enough. And I think now we're at the point where borrowing is going up, but it's not, uh, you know, there aren't, aren't huge defaults. You know, likewise, just a just very, uh, you know, simple analysis is that the prices of, of housing is still going up, uh, and typically, like the price of housing doesn't have a cra- a, a, a blow off top where it surges higher and then immediately crashes. Typically, it sort of peaks, crests, and then goes down. So, is this a is this a six to twelve month story for you, or a twelve to twenty four month? Well, I I think it's 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 a story of probably the housing market sort of three to five years of uh, 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 at least to, to readjust because there's a number of indicators that are are lagging indicators uh, you know employment is a lagging indicator anyway so we've got great, fantastic employment numbers isn't that great uh, so therefore we can't possibly be in a recession but actually if, if you think you might need workers tomorrow you hold on to the ones you've got and you know, and you and if you think you're going to do well, you hire some more people. It's only when the demand hasn't come through, and you realise that actually, I've, you know, I'm, it isn't going to come through, and I'm, I've got a cash problem here, that you start to lay people off. So unemployment is not very helpful at this stage of the cycle. Uh, it can look absolutely fantastic. You normally go into a recession with very low levels of unemployment. Well, which is where we are today. Um, if you look at housing. What you see is that the volume of houses on sale over the last two years has been relatively low. And the other point is that when you look at the monthly payment, what you're looking at is two numbers. You're looking at the interest rate and the capital cost. Now, if the capital cost is going up and the interest rate is going down, which is where we've been for 15 or 20 years, then you can argue to yourself, well, I'm never going to have to actually pay back that capital. All I care about is being able, can I meet the uh, uh, the, the monthly payment? Yeah, and sorry, I'll Paul, pay. just just uh, the, the capital the capital cost, that is how much the house is worth. Exactly. So if the, if the house, you know, if, if the average house is whatever it is, 450,000 bucks or something like that, and I'm paying 1%, you know, you're a, you're a genius, Jack. You know you could do the sum about what that monthly payment is going to be, but 
uh, you know, and so you know, if 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 it's four hundred fifty thousand and one percent, or it's you know two hundred thousand and five percent, actually, I think I'm right there. My you know my payment of the one percent rate will be lower, even though the the house price itself is higher. Wonderful, and because of that, I can borrow and so on, and I've got my credit cards and everything else. Life is lovely. What happens, however, when when mortgage rates double, which is what they've done? It gets much more expensive to buy a house. It gets much more expensive. And so now I'm in the position where I own a house and I'm actually quite keen to sell because of debt, divorce and, and, uh, and, and death. And you're the buyer and you're very, very keen on my house. You'd love to buy it. But the, the mortgage person is saying, but Jack, you, you know, even on your salary, you can't afford to pay that amount of money now. You could a year ago, but you can't today. Now, yes. what, what happens, and this, you're absolutely right in your description of the housing market, I sit here and I say, well, I'm not going to cut my price. I could have got $5 million for it last year. I'm, I'm not going to accept $3 million today. Don't be stupid. I'm just going to wait. Well, then it goes to $2 million, and then it goes to $1 million, And then I say, you know, actually, I need to get the, I need to get the heck out of this. And then I sell. And that's when the market, so it, it's, it exactly goes up, it plateaus, and then it comes down. It's a very sticky thing. So house prices don't tell you a lot about affordability, but they do tell you that you've got a problem coming along the line. That's a really good point about housing. And it's interesting to note that the Federal Reserve has not let a single mortgage-backed security roll off of its portfolio without buying it back, net-net. Yeah. It has only tapered its purchases. Next week... Wednesday, I think, June 1st, it is set to begin its it, uh, tightening, letting mortgage-backed securities roll off of its balance sheet. And already, despite the fact that not a single mortgage-backed security has been rolled off net-net, mortgage rates have still doubled from, what, 2.5% to 5%. How much do you think the market can take? Well, can I, can I just pick you up on a word you use there? Tightening. Please. Tightening? Excuse me, but we're not tightening. We're starting perhaps, to normalise. The last time that, uh, you know, we were writing about this in the last report, uh, the last time that interest rates were at 8.3%, or that inflation was 8.3%, we were at 10% interest rates. 10% interest rates, 8.3% inflation. And we're tightening with, you know, maybe going up 25 basis points or 50 basis points, or even shock horror, 70.75 basis points. No, we're not tightening. We've got you know, what's the diff? You know, if if we keep in mind the fact that we, you know, history says at today's level of inflation, we should, if we're trying to control inflation, be at ten percent interest rates. Now, what's affordable at ten percent? How many homes can I afford to buy? So I think you know that we're, we're on a path. And as I say, the crucial number to me is 3.25, because at three point, once we go through 3.25, then we're, we know we're back in that world of the 70s and 80s. And we know where interest rates will go at that point. And they won't be going to one. They'll be going to... 3.25% on the 10-year or... The 10-year, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the Federal Reserve, it has, on a relative basis... It has tightened things, right? Where the market is now pricing in something like a three percent terminal to, rate. It started. You know, words are important. It started to normalize. Tightening would be if we were at ten percent and going to fifteen. 
Yes. So your definition of tight is above our star, above the natural rate of, of interest. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm merely looking back at history and saying, this is where we were. We had 8.3% inflation in 1982, and we had 10% interest rates, 10.4, I think it was. So right. So if, if we're at 10.4 today and the Fed is tightening, then that means we're going to 11 or 12 or whatever. And that is tightening. They might do that. They might not. You know, Paul Volcker did, obviously. Um, and he's their current hero. But, you know, at today's rate, 2.8 or something uh, today, uh, we're not tightening at all. We're starting perhaps to normalize. Starting to normalize. Okay. I, starting to normalize. I, I would agree with that. Paul, let's uh, move on from housing to chemicals, your mm-hmm. your expertise, really your bread and butter. So the pH report, it's not only a, a, you know, a great name to, to way to capture your initials, but it also... It covers the chemicals market and particularly pH report. Chemicals, you you argue, are a litmus test for the global economy. So if chemicals prices, chemical companies are able to pass on high gas and high oil prices onto the consumer of chemicals, the buyer of chemicals, and the price of chemicals go up, that indicates a robust economy. And that's what you were seeing in the late half of 2020, first half of 2021. However, if they can't, which is what you were seeing a month ago when, when we last spoke, Paul, that is could be a harbinger of recession. What are you seeing in the chemicals markets? What are the prices doing? What are they telling you? We're seeing a, a, a patchwork now. So we're seeing some areas uh, which are really, really struggling now. One of the main polymers, polypropylene, for example, is really struggling. Polyethylene, on the other hand, uh, it, which goes more into uh, sort of consumer uh, markets, packaging and so on, is, is still holding up uh, a, bit, a bit better. But um, what, what, yeah, so, so what you're saying, what I'm saying is that there isn't a consistent pattern that it's all going very well or it's all going very badly, but some areas have, have really lost the plot and are going, going down and some areas are still hanging in there. So it's a judgment call. But generally speaking, if you look at what's going on and you look at the cries of pain that I hear when I talk to our clients, to, uh, to companies uh, at the moment, and, and this is where I think we have to bring in China because, uh, you know, Shanghai, one of the world's largest cities, 26 million people, been locked down now for coming up to a couple of months, sold zero cars in April. Can you imagine a city of 26 million not selling a single car? This kind of tells you that demand has been knocked for six. And, you know, and supply too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know. uh, so, so what it says is somewhere in the system, there is a tremendous hole. And as they say, you know, a hole has appeared. Police are looking into it. And... <laughs> You know, if we're, if we're the police and we're looking into this hole, I think we're saying, excuse me, you might just step back a bit. That hole seems to be broadening. And, you know, so you've you've got, uh, because it, it, it's not just, I mean, Nomura, the Japanese bank, have been doing a survey, and it's been between 325 and four, 400 million people in China affected by these lockdowns. Uh, you know, Shanghai, very wealthy city, Beijing, now going into a form of lockdown, the capital city, and so on. So that is, A, going to disrupt supply chains more. I mean, Apple warned about this, you know, a month ago, uh, and said, you know, we're going to take a hit of somewhere between four to eight billion. 
uh, because of supply chain problems and so on. Yeah, I haven't seen anything public since then, but I, I'd imagine that, that that hit is going to be larger. I noticed that they're talking now about pulling out of, of uh, China in some areas if they can and re-establishing in Vietnam or whatever. Uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot going on. I noticed that you know, the, the, the people who do the word counts for you know, quarterly earnings calls are saying that there's been a dramatic spike in the number of CEOs and CFOs talking about reshoring now and so on. Uh, so w we know there's some major disruption going on. And what I know about disruption is that it's a bit like, you know, you're on the top of a mountain and you want to get over to that mountain there, but there isn't a zip wire that you just go straight across. That's all right. No, you go down into a valley, you you lose all the stuff that you'd had before, and then you have to rebuild again. So, you know, China, China, China is almost certainly, people tell me now who live there, uh, is in recession. So Europe is in recession. I just don't see how America can uh, can avoid it. Wow. Yeah, I'm just looking at the uh, Kaishin China manufacturing PMI, and it's officially in recession territory. Yeah. Tell us... Yeah. Why Why is the Chinese government locking so many people uh, up or, or sort of treating them like prisoners? Um, you know, I understand there's the, the COVID thing, but it seems like in America, at least, Americans protest when there are lockdowns. But is it that in China, it's the opposite when if there's too much COVID, they, they think that would harm stability? Because it seems like it's very this lockdown policy is extremely um, it, it does not at all support their financial goals, their, their goals of growth, or even stability of, by any sort. Because this is causing a market crash in China, it's causing an economic crash, it's causing horrible things. But if, if you go back, you see, this is the thing about the last 20 or so years, where we've always said, you know, the pie is growing, and so there aren't arguments about dividing it up and so on. You know, it, you know what's good for the economy, you know, is, is the main thing. Actually, most of history, what's good for the economy has been a second or third. So the, the question for President Xi Jinping, and he's coming up for reappointment for his third term in October or November, and uh, he's gone with zero COVID as a policy. So you know, China is China, and it's a fact of life that China doesn't like to admit that something it's got isn't very good. So it won't admit that its vaccines are not very good. We all know that they're not very good. And we all know that the solution would be to actually get Pfizer vaccines or Moderna vaccines or whatever and use them. But no, that's, that would be losing face. And so yeah, that can't be done. And Xi Jinping has set his stall out on we had the best record with this. We did the lockdowns and we're going to continue with lockdowns. Because the other problem with China is that its medical services outside the major cities, the major cities are only sort of about a third to a half of the of the population, depending on how you count them, uh, medical services are pretty rudimentary. You know, if you're lucky, you could get a Band-Aid, but you probably can't get an injection. You know, it's, it's, it's that serious. Because the majority, you know, the, the rural population, the you know, discretionary spending um, in China is for people outside of the main cities. It's only 4,000 bucks a year. You know, disposable disposable income disposable income in the main cities the biggest cities averages less than the poverty rate in the states this is not really a wealthy country 
this is a country that appears to be wealthy because of subprime on steroids, because of the, the highest possible um, multiple for housing prices. And so as long as house prices keep going up, then that's no problem. You can afford to buy the new car and so on, just as we saw in the States. But now house prices are falling and lockdowns are underway and the economy is being hit. So if, you know, and, and you know, President Xi decided that you had to tackle the real estate bubble. He, you know, he came out with this phrase, homes are for living in, not for speculation. And there's one thing you have to do. He can't lose face. He said, I'm going to tackle the real estate bubble. He can't row back on that. He said, we're going to be the best in the world with a zero COVID policy. He can't row back on that. Well, if the economy suffers, well, the economy suffers. That's just the way it is. What is the current state of the real estate normalization, to use to use your word? Uh, I know in the summer, you know, Evergrande equity essentially went to zero. There were a lot of other subprime construction companies that their equities had been severely impaired. Their their debt, their bonds were trading at something like thirty cents on the dollar. Where are we now? Are we is the Chinese real estate sector anywhere close to sort of the bottom from which it may emerge, or is the deleveraging only just beginning? You've got house price to earnings ratio in Beijing and Shanghai, you know, are in the top five in the world. So they're higher than New York or London. Uh, yeah, they're in the in the forties and fifties. Uh, so they're stratospheric, and as I say, that's fine as long as. Prices are going up because everybody, you know, you know what banks are like. Banks will lend you an umbrella when it, when it's sunny, and they'll take it back when it starts raining. And you know that is what we're seeing now in the uh, in, in the in the in the housing market there. So house prices are starting to fall in most of the major cities. It's a bit hard to know what's going on because if you're not allowed to leave your home, I mean, I, you know, I I know people living in in Shanghai, and only last week were they after six weeks allowed to actually walk out of their apartment it wasn't like here that you know you're allowed out for an hour or something like that or whatever and so on you were not allowed to leave your apartment I mean, chinese apartments are not that large to start with and what it must have been like with young children i mean it's just unbelievable you know so uh, and it was policed you know there was somebody at the bottom of every uh, it was a vigilante at the, at the bottom of every staircase to make sure you didn't go anywhere. What is happening to the uh, employment situation in Shanghai and these other cities that are, are locked down? It sounds like the situation economically is more severe than it was in March and April 2020 in the United States. And the United, what the United States did is did paycheck protection program, stimulus checks, furloughs, a lot of income support. Is China going going to do that? No. Why? Because that's they 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 haven't got they haven't got the system to do it. China, 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 yeah, there, there are very wealthy people in China, and there are you know, some people living at middle class levels, you know, fifty thousand uh, dollar and plus levels uh, as we would recognise them. But the vast vast majority, eighty percent of the population, is is somewhere below poverty level by American comparison and uh, and, and one has to remember that the economy you know the housing market in China only began to operate in 1998 
there was in 19 because all land all property was owned by the communist party until 1998 and still all land and property outside the major cities is still owned by the government so there was you know one of the things that struck me when i began to work on this you know many years ago was that it took until about 2002 or 3 for the word mortgage to come into Chinese. Do you think the, the PMI, the Kaishin PMI, Chinese uh, Kaishin PMI could go lower than 2020? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, China is not the US. You know, there was this quite extraordinary period, I remember in sort of 2010 or so, where a whole lot of blue-eyed Americans and others visited Shanghai and Beijing for the first time and they saw these skyscrapers and they were taken in by what appeared to be, you know, a, gee, we never knew that China would become middle class so quickly. Well, there was a reason for that. It hadn't become middle class. <laughs> you know? What did you say? I say it hadn't become middle class. <laughs> you know? And so the, 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 the problem you've got is false expectations. Now, ordinary Chinese have been used to, you know, you had the Great Famine during Mao's era, where the grain, where grain stores were locked. Uh, you, had, you had the famine, one part of the famine was caused where Mao decided that birds were eating all the seeds. And so he said, you've got to stay up all night and you've got to bang, the, uh, you've got to bang your, your saucepans and so on to stop the birds landing so they don't, um, they don't eat the seeds. Uh, from the from the, the food rice crop and so on, and so the birds eventually all died out, and then you've got of course a, a plague of locusts next year because you had no birds. Um, yeah, so this is uh, yeah th th those those of us who've, who've who've worked in China for a long time uh, know that um, there is there isn't there there isn't a modern democracy operating here with checks and balances. There is what President Xi Jinping wants to do. And one of the things that President Xi Jinping cannot do is lose face. Paul, to, to look for a silver lining in what is a very dark sky, do you think we'll have the same thing that we had in March and April of 2020, where everyone is at home and they were buying iPhones, they were buying things that they didn't need on Amazon? Like, is is are we could we possibly see a, a could this be a bull market for Alibaba and Pinduoduo because everyone is locked at home and having for being forced to order stuff? Well. Uh, what, what I was told uh, this morning uh, by uh, the CEO of a Western company in, uh, in, it, who lives in Shanghai, has been in Shanghai for eight years, um, is that the rumor mill says 20% of uh, tech staff have been sacked. Wow. So that doesn't imply that uh, you know, Alibaba and so on are coming back anytime soon. You know, the, the, the issue that's happening now and we mentioned it in the PH report, is that you know, the, the parameter for China has shifted. If you're a Western company thinking about investing in China, you don't anymore say to yourself, if you're sensible, oh, I, you know, I wonder what we can get out of it. You have instead to say, what's in it for China? Because if you don't do what's in it for China, you won't get anywhere. And you've got to decide, first of all, if we're doing this, in order to benefit China, can we make some money from it as well? Let's move on to electric vehicles. I know China has grand ambitions to become the, the world leader in electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles. Mm. Tell us about how that's been going on and how does the shutdown 
uh, across the country affect that. Not just Chinese companies like uh, you know Peng Peng Auto or or Neo, but also companies like Tesla and other foreign uh, uh, non Chinese electric vehicle manufacturers. Well, there's two things until we get to. To, to that one of one of the interesting things that's happening is uh, poor dear VW, who being the main Western seller in uh, China's market for a very long time, are being squeezed, because when you w- when we had you know what you might call the boomer supercycle, when you had this sort of constant demand, you developed a middle ground in the market, so you you didn't have uh, you know a sort of divide between a Rolls Royce. And a you know a sort of um, a, a Trabant uh, in the old days of East East German, where you you, you you didn't have an engine, you just had a floor and you could pedal along, uh, sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so you know markets were very much divided between high perceived value and low cost. So if you can afford, uh, you know, sort of a, a fur coat, well you could have a fur coat, but otherwise most of us just have something to try and keep us warm, and there isn't a middle ground. We had the middle ground. Now, what's happening in the car market under the pressure of, uh, of, of the recession is that that middle ground is now disappearing. And so poor old VW are really, they're being hit worse. Tesla, interestingly, is not being hit so badly because it's up at the top end. So as long as there are, you know, as F. Scott Fitzgerald said, that, you know, the, the rich are different from the rest of us because they've got more money. And so pe- you know, there are still people who can afford to buy uh, Tesla cars, the other upmarket, but otherwise the Chinese companies, uh, the Neos, the Xpengs, and so on, uh, the Wuling, for example, my favourite car, you know, sell, sell, sells for a few, 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 few hundred bucks uh, as an EV. These are doing rather well, and so you're getting two changes going on in the market at once. One is a pivot from a middle market to either competing in the upmarket. Or the down market. Think also of you know for, from the uh, smartphone market. Exactly the same thing happened. You know, Samsung's market share everywhere has halved over the last three or four years. You know, Apple's still doing okay at one end, and then you know, the uh, cheap Chinese people at the, at the bottom. Um, so th- that's one thing. The second thing is that what we're really looking at in China is a move to autonomous vehicles. And why do I say that? Is because China can't possibly build um, a gasoline or diesel engine that will compete with Ford or VW or GM or anybody else. They've been doing it 100 years. It can't do that starting from 10 years ago. So it's not going to try and do it. But anybody can make an electric vehicle. There's no no competitive advantage. You and I, you know, Farley and Hodges can go out there we could ask all the, uh, the viewers of Forward Guidance to, uh, to you know, put in a reservation, and we could we could make money. You know, if we get our numbers right on that, uh, because you know there are very few moving parts in an electric vehicle. There are twenty, perhaps, compared to two thousand. So it isn't complicated. So if you if you want to run a brand, if you want to make money, you've got to do something else. And so what everybody is doing, that's in the States and Europe as well as, as in China, is you're moving to autonomous vehicles, you're becoming a, a software-based supplier of mobility solutions. So uh, the electric vehicles are easier to make only 20 pieces, parts, as opposed to internal combustion engines, which require 2,000. You say, how come it's we see so many electric vehicle companies sputter and fail? They come to market with these bold promises and then 
the stocks go from 10 to 110 to 50 cents. How come we've seen so much failure if it's so easy? You know, and and what should should uh, Hodges and Farley as a company should we be worried about this? Because you know we don't want to disappoint our viewers who are going to become drivers of our electric vehicles. Well, luckily Hodges and Farley have got a got a theory. Uh, here, but there's 20 moving parts compared to 2,000. So, it, so, so what I'm saying is, your analysis, Jack, as always, is exactly right. That there is no competitive advantage. Any, any, any fool, more or less, including ourselves, could go and make an electric vehicle. All we have to do is to buy some plastic, we buy some batteries, and so on. There's nothing to it. So, how on earth do you build a Warren Buffett moat here? Because there's always going to be somebody. You know, Joe or Jane down the road who finds a way of doing it two bucks cheaper. Um, yeah. So people, it's a typical market. We launch, everybody thinks, well, these guys are great. Well, of course we are great. Uh, it just happens that we're not very good at making electric vehicles. So you all rush in, you all buy the stock, it goes to 500. We luckily sell at that point uh, because we've suddenly got, suddenly got urgent requirements, you understand. We're still very committed to the thing, but you know, we just have to sell. I, I had expenses, Paul. You have expenses. Yeah, you know, yeah, it has yeah, nothing yeah, to do with... Uh, yeah. uh, it, uh, tuition fees, I can't remember what it was. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about my wife's diamond. She's got insatiable demand for diamonds. So we just had to sell. It's, demand, it's been pent up, pent up demand too. Exactly. If only the viewers would subscribe now to this this stock that we're about to issue. <laughs> we, you know, her birthday's coming up. You know, this this could be very good news. Maybe we could put a subscription uh, on the web afterwards. Uh, but seriously, uh, for a moment, what 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 you're there for doing? What the car companies are doing, and Tesla's doing this as well. Um, to, you know, it isn't isn't you know, everybody recognizes the only way you'll get to have some competitive advantage and some protection is by going to autonomous driving because that is difficult you know you anybody can do level two that's fairly simple level three which people are starting to do where you're allowed to do it within certain areas is easier to do but it doesn't get you anywhere who on earth is going to buy a a a car or rent a car from you if you can only drive it in certain streets in in los angeles or San Francisco or something, it's not worth So you've got to get to level four, which means you've got to be capable in level five of actually driving remotely, not only hands off and eyes off, but mind off. You know, that's the way to think about it. You know, so, uh, yeah, so you get to level four, level five. And, you know, you've seen the, the videos of uh, Mary Barra from, uh, uh, from GM doing that uh, in, in San Francisco, you've seen uh, Herbert Dies of VW doing that uh, in Germany uh, so it's possible but they haven't got authorization to do it and we're two or three years away from it but what that means is that you're going to move business model to a pay-per-use mobility as a service kind of thing um, so there's two questions here or maybe three first one is have you got enough cash to get you through this period to when you can start selling these cars, given the competitive pressure that you're under, because as I say, you know, electric vehicles, anybody can do it. And certainly costs are going up at the moment. So that's not very good news. The second thing is, can you actually hire the software engineers and get to this new business model? And thirdly, when you've done all that, will the authorities actually give you permission to do it? You know, so, um, there's, there's some fairly big statements that have to be made here. I mean, I could I could say 
you know, if 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 you look at General Motors or or Ford, you can say, well, they've got their income from gasoline and diesel cars. That should tide them over. If you say about Tesla, well, Tesla, you know, normally relies on raising more more funds. Given what's happened to its stock price, will it find it so easy to raise more money next time it needs some? We don't know. You know it's just an example of a question mark. And if it can't, it goes bust because it hasn't got, you know, its, it's, it's actual earnings are not enough to support this move to level four and level five um, autonomous vehicles. So, you know, but let, let's just let's give people a pass and say, yes, they probably can survive. Can they hire and retain the IT support they need? Maybe they can. We, you know, if, you, if you say each of these is an 80% chance, and then you do the sums, so it's 80% chance you can keep the funding going for the next three years, another 80% chance that you can hire all the software engineers and they know what they're doing, another 80% chance at the moment that authorities will actually let you do this. Eight by eight is 64. Eight by 64 is something a bit less. So you've got less than 50% chance of most companies making it. Now that isn't factored into stock prices. So I'm very enthusiastic about EVs. I'm very enthusiastic about automo uh, AVs, but I don't think most of the companies around will survive. Yes, it's, it's kind of like an internet but where the, the companies that will survive will be transformational. Yeah. Uh, so I know you're you're not super bullish on Tesla. Let's put it that way. <laughs> what do you make of Ford, General Motors, Volkswagen, Stellantis, the Chinese electric vehicle companies? Because also I was just looking. I was uh, I found Ford, and its its price to earnings ratio is actually something at like four and a half. So that does there is there are companies out there that meet the uh, uh, um, Benjamin Graham equation test of lower than eight mm. and a half. Earnings. Earnings. And then also, you had a note in your PH report, which I, I recommend people um, check out, about why you why automotive companies are in a very good place right now. What did you mean by that? If you if you go now into the the, the new world of investing, away from the Bernanke Greenspan thing, into the world of uh, of Paul Volcker, what, therefore you go to Ben Ben Graham. What you're doing is you're looking at the quality of earnings, and so you're forming a judgment about the industry and the management, and you know, that's a judgment. There, there are no there are no rights or wrongs on this, but uh, and generally speaking, there is a, a a famous phrase which is is true, which is if there's a, a dispute between the reputation of the management and the reputation of the industry, it's generally the industry's reputation that comes out ahead. So, in other words, if it's a Pretty, pretty bum industry without much prospects, but you get some super managers, they tend to go, yeah, they, they tend to, to disappoint. So I think that there's a, there's, there's a good opportunity for the established automakers here, recognizing, however, that there are two key challenges. One is they have to pivot from their current sales model which has been very successful for 100 years, which is through dealers. And they somehow have to move away from their dealers to selling online and to, you know, because what, you, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be, as I say, it's going to be mobility as a service. That, you know, fast forward 10 years time, that's my Ben Graham thing, you know, you're in, in New York and what you'll have is a bundle with, say, GM or with Ford. And you'll pay them fifty bucks 
a month, and that will entitle you to uh, an AV coming to your door and picking you up in Queens and taking you around you know, downtown. If you want to go up to Boston, you'll have another roaming package. So, but but that, that's one problem. I said there was a second problem. Second problem is that you're coming in, it, it, coming into uh, the market are the Chinese. And the Chinese are coming in with a very low price model because that's what they do. And, and they're coming in, they're changing the world a bit in that what they're really looking at, and this makes sense to me at least, they're looking, it's, they say, we're not going to actually supply batteries and charge you for a battery. We're going to do battery swapping. And, you know, they've got 900, uh, NEO, for example, got 900 stations. It's part of Chinese government policy now, because if you're going to do an autonomous vehicle, well, you, supposing you need to recharge it, well, excuse me, there isn't anybody there to take the battery out and swap it over. There isn't anybody there to plug it in. Just how are you going to do this, this charging thing? If you do battery swapping, well, what they've done is they've built a you know, system. You have a common, a, car, a common layout. So you drive your car into the booth. A minute later, literally a minute later, uh, the battery has been swapped. And that has two big advantages. One is you don't, when you're buying the, the, the doing the, the, the rental, you're not actually paying all the, the cost of, of the battery. You're amortizing that. And secondly, you're keeping up to date with the latest battery technology and you don't have the person. So you, you've got to make those two pivots in the model because you know, battery swapping is quite different from a Ford V6 engine which is what I had to have, but you don't like Ford V6s, you like GM V6s or whatever it is, and so on. You know, so, so this is where the, uh, these are the big challenges. And it's always easy, in my view, to look at the, the obvious things about, you know, can they sell it and is the right price right and so on. Yeah, people can do that. But the, 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 the real issue is the cultural one. Can you get the whole dealer network to accept that this is what we're going to do? I mean, we, we've seen the... Uh, uh, you know, the, in, in the unions, you have 400,000 jobs disappear because of going to electric and autonomous vehicles because nothing goes wrong. You don't need servicing anymore. What mm. happens to insurance, for example, because Mercedes are trying this out next, next year. You know, you, it, the there isn't an individual driver. So I know, you know, we don't get motor insurance, which is a vast proportion of of insurance demand the insurance has to be from the manufacturer because if i'm an autonomous vehicle and it hits someone or crashes or whatever well, it's not my fault no it's the manufacturer so you've you've got an enormous number of challenges that you've got to overcome yes um well the the long-term deflationary aspect of electric and autonomous vehicles is something that you and I have been talking about for a, a long while. Mm. Paul, it's been fantastic uh, having you on Forward Guidance. Thank you so much. Um, people should follow you at on Twitter at Paul Hodges One. They can find your writings on new-normal.com. Paul, uh, what's the, your final message? What's your, your closing words you want to leave the audience with? Um, yeah, the BBC is a very famous um, you know, broadcasting organization and occasionally it gets into trouble. And when it gets into trouble, people use the acronym 
be bloody careful. Sorry for swearing. I think that's my message about the markets. There will be money to be made on the upside and on the downside. But BBC, be bloody careful. This is not the world of the last 20 years. It's the world of your your, your, your granddad. And uh, you know he'll tell you it wasn't necessarily plain sailing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you very much.